science story. Huh. And I just thought, well, I figured it wow. out. I it was that tall. golden moment because science was on my side. Hey, everybody! Welcome to the Story Collider, where we bring you true, personal stories about science. I am your host, Aaron Barker, and this week we're presenting stories about pregnancy. Pregnancy. It's beautiful. It's magical. It's terrifying. Some of us want it. Some of us are ready to be done with it. Our first story about pregnancy today is from Bianca Jones Marlin. It was recorded in August 2018 at Caveat in New York City. The theme that night was attraction. I have a PhD in attraction. I should clarify. More specifically, my doctoral studies looked at the molecule that regulates the laws of attraction, a molecule called oxytocin. You may have heard about it. It's like the love drug. Nonetheless, it's released from our bodies during certain things like that, that foster communication and foster connections, like holding hands, eye contact, orgasms, all the way to uterine contractions and milk breastfeeding. And so it helps to foster these relationships. And what my doctoral studies looked at was how oxytocin changes a very particular type of attraction, the attraction of a mother to her child. And oxytocin also has a uh, synthetic correlate, you may have heard of it, pitocin. Um, if you heard about it not from the medical field, maybe because you Googled it on Amazon, because you could buy it on Amazon, um, to bolster your sex life, don't buy it on Amazon. Um, but you also find it in hospitals because it's used to speed up birth and speed up labor and induce birth. And what we looked at in our studies was the fact that in mice, we looked at mammals, mice, um, virgins, they're actually just animals that have never given birth. We call them virgins, but like their sexual history is their own business. <laughs> so, you know... But these virgins, they'll hear the sound of a baby crying, and they'll go up to the child, baby, baby mouse, mouse, the pup, and either ignore it and leave it to die, or they'll eat it. Yes, but after this virgin mouse finds its true love and white picket fence and gets knocked up, it will no longer cannibalize or leave mice to die. Instead, it will take care of pups crying. And this urge is so strong, this attraction is so strong, that it will even take care of pups that aren't its own, and it will take care of pups into old age. And what our study showed was that when you added oxytocin to virgins, even without them ever having babies, they would do the same task. So oxytocin really made bad moms into good moms, and bad babysitters into pretty solid babysitters. And this is pretty close for me um, in, in, in my life because I was blessed enough to be raised by two parents who were also foster parents. So I had foster siblings. And I saw my siblings being loved in the family, being loved in my family, that my parents didn't birth them from their body, but they birthed them from their heart. And to see that oxytocin could save the day in that manner really allowed me to, to dive into my studies. And I really was just a big fan of oxytocin. And then I got pregnant. <laughs> and in my mind, I had this all painted out. I was going to be sitting with flowers behind me like Beyonce, my basketball belly. 
I was going to have my husband rub oils on my feet, like organic geranium. <laughs> my sisters are going to fan my hair as like a white, rite of passage. And of course, I was going to have like five-hour labor because anything less than that you can't brag about. Five-hour labor. And I was going to give an all-natural birth, no medication, and my child will come out. We'd both sing. <laughs> and then... <laughs> I'd be walking in the halls, I'm walking in um, Central Park, and I'd like, just whip out my breasts and breastfeed my baby underneath the willows because oxytocin bonding time. And I had it, I had it all planned out. And so when I went to my obstetrician gynecologist, uh, who was also at NYU at the time, and um, told her this is what my plan was. <laughs> yeah, she did just that. She laughed in my face. And I was like, but I, I want awards about oxytocin. And she was like, you are going to want Pitocin, the, the synthetic analog, because you're going to want this baby to get out. And I was very firm in not wanting Pitocin. I wanted to see oxytocin operate in real time. I had dedicated so much of my life to studying this molecule. It was my turn to get it to work for me. And she said, I can do whatever I see fit, but she recommends Pitocin. And deep down inside, I was like, that's a dare. And I was <laughs> in competition with the lady who's going to be delivering my baby, which is less than ideal. <laughs> Nonetheless, Saturday morning came around, and I had my first labor pain. It was the same Saturday that I had signed up for an eight-hour Lamaze class for birthing and, and how to give birth. But whatever, oxytocin, I got this, right? So we had our labor pains, my husband and I, we walked around, we took pictures of me in labor, we bought champagne, we made sure the bag was packed, we put the timer on because in five hours I was going to have a kid. <laughs> 24 hours later, I was still pregnant and in labor. And so that first night, he stayed up with me. He did massage my feet with geranium and other like things as I like hurled out the food that I eaten the day before. And my body just crushed underneath the pressure of labor pains. And I thought, what is happening? This is not the way Beyonce made it look. <laughs> and so at the 30-hour time point, they usually suggest that you go in when, you're, when your contractions are about two minutes, two minutes apart for two hours. Mine were three minutes three minutes apart for 30 hours. <laughs> and so at 30 hours, I was over it. <laughs> mm -hmm. And so we got an Uber black, jumped into the car, and I pulled up at NYU, and although I was 30 hours in labor, I was like, I'm here at NYU, I met oxytocin here, I met my husband here, and now I'm going to have my baby here. Take a picture. <laughs> And we got into the labor and delivery. And at this point, I'm just, I'm exhausted. As every time a labor pain comes, I'm just putting myself into this zone where I'm like pulling my head back and forth and like humming and telling like, you're great, it's okay, you can do it, it's great. Oh my gosh, it's almost over, it's still two minutes. It was a whole intense thing. And so I pull, I'm, I'm in the labor and delivery room and they go to check how dilated you are to see how close you are to giving birth. So eight centimeters, it's like, okay, you're almost close. Nine centimeters, like this baby's gonna come out. And so as the flush of labor pain comes about and I'm hearing the lady next door to me also scream in pain and she's like, where is my epidural? And then I hear like plastic crumble, a doctor walk in and she's like, 
And I'm thinking, I want that. <laughs> and my doctor comes up to me and he's like, so Bianca, you're two centimeters dilated. I was uh, going through something called prodromal labor, which gives you all of the labor benefits like labor pains, but none of the labor benefits like dilation. <laughs> and so we pulled up in an Uber Black and went back home in a yellow cab because the only other option I had was to take Pitocin to initiate the labor, and I was still in competition with the doctor. And so... On the way home, my husband had already called the, our family on the way there because, you know, five hours. This is about 30 hours after that. Um, and so I walk into my house to find my mom, my dad. I should rewind. I walk into my apartment <laughs> to find my mom, my dad, my sister, her best friend, my other sister, her husband, their one-year-old, and my mother-in-law, <laughs> all in the apartment. And at this point, I haven't slept in two days. I'm walking to and fro in the hallway like a drunk zombie, trying to rip all aspects of clothing off my body as my husband runs behind me to throw the robe over because we have company. <laughs> and that night, uh, he fell asleep because he's been up for two days, and I still had to track all of my labor pains, and I saw it at 2 o'clock, 2.05, 2.10, 3.15, all the way to 6 o'clock, being tracked. And oxytocin was failing me. I had dedicated so much of my life to this, only to be in labor for longer than I was pregnant is what it felt like. <laughs> Day four rolls around, and I'm like, this is jokes. We need to go. And so we got, jump into another Uber Black because I'm still having a baby, guys. And so... <laughs> Um, and we pull up at NYU, this time no pictures. I'm like, get me a wheelchair. Somehow, I'm fairly confident I threatened someone, but I was in the room. I was in the room, and I knew it was time when I looked up and 20 medical students walked in because I gave birth in a teaching hospital. And I gave birth in the same teaching hospital I got my PhD in, so I recognized some of those faces. <laughs> and I did not care. <laughs> And I gave birth to a healthy baby daughter. Her name is Sage. And yeah, she's awesome. And um, like they, they like take her out and then like they put her on you for skin to skin contact because that releases oxytocin. And I've been having oxytocin released for four days. So they put her on my chest and the first thought that came to my mind was, get this slimy thing off of me. <laughs> oxytocin. But I knew that I was going to mommy right. And so I made sure I breastfed her. I made sure I did skin to skin. I made sure that I was gonna have oxytocin released at all these moments. And six weeks in, after mommy incorrectly, I woke up to a migraine that was worse than my four days of labor pain. And my husband rushed me to the hospital and they immediately admitted me because my blood pressure was through the roof. And I kept on telling the doctor that I have a newborn at home and can you just give me this pain medication so I can go home. And what I wasn't hearing, which what, what he was telling me was that I had postpartum preeclampsia and it's marked by um, high blood pressure that then leads to seizures. 
And he told me that the most tragic thing he had ever seen was a young woman with a newborn baby come in and decide to leave the hospital only to die from seizures. I was admitted in, and for those four days, I wasn't with my daughter. I didn't breastfeed her. I didn't have skin-to-skin contact. And I felt that all the work that I had done to prepare for that point was just being erased because oxytocin wasn't being released. And that fifth night, after being away, with her for, away from her for a week, when I did get home, and I was able to lay my head on the pillow and go to sleep, I realized that in the hospital, I was attached to monitors, and I had nurses on 24-hour seizure watch. And although I was flooded with contrast from my MRIs and contrast from my, my CAT scans and magnesium to keep me from seizing, I was in a safe place. And although when I got back, I couldn't feed, uh, breastfeed her because of all the chemicals that were in my body, there was nothing that was hooking me up to anything to know that I was okay. And I couldn't go to sleep because I know if I wasn't okay, she wouldn't be okay. What I came to realize is that my connection with my daughter, who's now a year and a half old, isn't punctuated moments of oxytocin release. It's our life together. And oxytocin operates in a myriad of interactions, from the doctor who convinced me to stay and save my life, to my friends who were supportive when I left the hospital and couldn't breastfeed anymore because my milk had dropped, going back to school full-time and talking me through and not going back to work full-time and talking me through not being with my baby. And I realized that every tear I shed when I was in the pump room and I only saw dribbles of milk come out that weren't going to support my baby, and every time I had to work late and couldn't be with her, and every time my heart broke for that, that was oxytocin. It was there the whole time. And as scientists, we have this way of making sure things are clean and experiments are proper. But that's not the way life is. We can't always predict the outcome. What I did learn is that Mother Nature will never leave us hanging. She is a mother after all. Thank you. That was Bianca Jones-Marlin. Bianca is a neuroscientist and postdoctoral researcher at Columbia University, where she's a fellow in the laboratory of Nobel laureate Dr. Richard Axel, where she investigates how traumatic experiences in parents affect the brain structure of their offspring. Her research has been featured in the Los Angeles Times, The Guardian, Scientific American, and Discover Magazine's 100 Top Stories of 2015. She is the recipient of the 2016 Society for Neuroscience Donald B. Lindsley Award, which recognizes the most outstanding Ph.D. thesis in the general area of behavioral neuroscience. And she was named a Stat Wunderkind in 2017. She is currently a junior fellow in the prestigious Simon Society of Fellows. Our next story today is from Veronica Maduna. It was recorded in 2018 at Meow in Wellington, New Zealand. The theme that night was heroic efforts. When I was in my 20s, I knew as surely as you could that I was never going to have kids. It wasn't even a dilemma. It was just not anywhere on my horizon. And I had a close friend, my best friend at the time. She felt the same. We were both in relationships that felt like they'd last, but having children just wasn't in our plans. 
it didn't shift when the friends around us all started first announcing their pregnancies and then announcing the birth of their children. A few years after that, Andy and I, husband, Andy and I, moved to the other side of the world, to New Zealand. But my friend and I stayed close. We maybe didn't talk often. We might just catch up once or twice a year, but we were still really good friends. It's one of those friendships that you might only catch up very infrequently, but it feels like nothing's changed in between. It's just the same. And so Andy and I are setting up our new life. We're establishing new friendships. We're kind of starting in a new place. And then it happens again. The new people around us, by now we're mid-30s, 35, it happens again, one after the other. They announce first their pregnancies and then the birth of their children. I was a little less sure by this stage, but still at a distance from it all. And then I get an email, just a short note from my friend, to say that she'd had a chat with her man and they kind of felt that it was the other one who didn't want children and they talked about it and found they do. And in a few weeks they were going to ex- they were expecting the birth of their daughter. This cut right through me. It's one of those feelings like the floor goes out under you. I was stunned. I didn't know what to say, what to think. I was angry, even furious, just complete anger rather than feeling joy for her or being happy for her. I was angry and I'm going on this tailspin, just a deep dive, confrontation with whatever it is, this thing that keeps me at a distance, doesn't even allow me to come near. And so I'm starting to work through some of that, I don't know, the barrier there. And as I'm starting to imagine this child in the future, I find myself going back to this child in the past, this child that's me, this childhood that somewhere, what is it in there? And I don't actually find anything huge, anything awful, anything obviously traumatising or anything like that. It's just a string of a lot of small things. My parents being teenage, teenagers when they had me, Um, Lots of shifting in place and circumstances. My dad becoming seriously unwell when he was actually quite a young man. My brother being born when I was a teenager. Me doing a lot of proxy parenting way too early. A lot of things that taught me a lot what I didn't want to do, what I didn't want to do, but I didn't have much at all. In fact, nothing at all that could show me my idea of being a good parent. I couldn't see that. So... I'm working through this. I feel like I'm inching my way closer to something, but I'm 38 at this point. So I also go and see my GP just to kind of find out where I am physically. My GP takes me through something that is called a egg reserve test. It's essentially a suite of blood tests that measures all the hormones involved in my cycles, in my fertility. It gives you a snapshot of snapshot of where you are. And it comes back looking just fine. Just good, except for one hormone, prolactin, that's way off the chart, completely out there. And my GP has a suspicion, so he sends me off to have a brain scan. And the next time I come back to an appointment with him, he says, well, you've got a tumour on your pituitary gland. It's a benign growth, so nothing to worry about. But your prolactin is 
way out there, and prolactin is a hormone that's normally only produced during breastfeeding. So my body is confused. It's not going to become pregnant easily. I need help. This is quickly turning into uh, immense upheaval inside. To me, it feels like I'm turning myself inside out, but I'm not. I'm not actually letting any of this out. I'm not talking to friends. I'm not talking to Andy. I'm not talking to anybody. Nothing. None of this comes out. And I'm a pretty horrid person to be with during the time. And I'm wrestling this thing so hard that eventually it all implodes and we break up. And then I break down. This is the point where I'm just about there, the resolution, and then there's nothing left. Everything is a mess. Then we go through nearly five years of a crazy no-man's-no-woman's land. We're not together anymore, neither are we apart. We've got lots of friends who try and support us, but it drives them spear. It drives us crazy. Then Andy decides to leave the country and we don't talk for a year. But then we do. And it feels tentative, but it feels like a new, different thing and it feels like something that now includes the idea of us becoming parents except that by now I'm 42 and he's about to move to Delhi for a year for his work but then I've got nothing to lose so I take a year off from work and I travel to Delhi to meet him in Delhi in India neither of us has ever been to India and we get there and we're just absolutely overwhelmed crazy place we have no idea what we're doing, where do you even start? And so we Google fertility clinics in Delhi, (laughs) and there are a few. (laughs) And not long after that, we're walking up the steps to our first waiting room. This room is full of women, mostly women, some of them alone, some of them supported by other women, some of them supported by men, men, everybody's huddled into themselves. Everybody's looking down. Nobody's making any eye contact. Everybody's quiet, hunched into themselves. But the walls of this room are plastered with huge posters of cute, smiling babies. And we sit there for hours. Everybody waits for hours until they get to see this consultant. It's awkward. It's hugely uncomfortable. It just does not feel right. By the time we get to see the consultant, I'm really worried, feeling almost unwell. I'd read by this stage a lot about assisted fertility. I knew the risks. I knew about the chances. I knew all those stories. And so I'm starting this conversation with saying, is this the right thing for us? Is this something we should even do? And in response, we get this big smile from this man. And he says, oh, don't worry. Nothing to worry. Because just last week, one of my patients, a 56-year-old woman, had twins. We can do this. And I go, like, that's not what we wanted to hear at all. (laughs) And so we're starting to extract ourselves from the place and kind of peel back from the whole idea of doing this, thinking it's not going to work for us. But then serendipity kicks in. Just by complete coincidence, I meet a fellow writer who just happens to be in Delhi on a placement. His wife is there too, also on a placement. She's a gynaecologist. 
She's working with an Indian doctor who's setting up an IVF clinic in Delhi's biggest hospital, Murchand Hospital. So we make an appointment. And when we get there, we meet Kabri Banerjee. And she turns out to be the most amazing person you could have on your side while you're contemplating fertility treatment. She's a mother, for starters, a working mother, two kids, lots of stories about pregnancy, miscarriage, parenting. She listens. She's got everything we need to go through this. Almost. There's no sperm lab at Mulchant Hospital. For his part, Andy will have to go somewhere else in Delhi. And so we go and check out this sperm laboratory. And it's in a completely different part of the big city, crazy city. It's in a busy street and a back block behind shops. And it's really just a room with a long bench. And there's these guys behind the bench wearing aprons, looking at us, smiling at us as if we'd come to buy a beautiful Indian carpet or something. <laughs> and I never get to go beyond this bench because this is men's territory. Only Andy gets to go further. <laughs> and he ends up paying quite a few visits to this place. And every time he leaves, these guys give him, give him a little vial to hold. And he has to hop on his bike and cycle through the crazy traffic in Delhi to the hospital where I'm already waiting, ready in stirrups. Um, <laughs> and we did this a few times, but this more gentle approach did nothing for us. So eventually we graduate to full-blown IVF. It's a radical process. At the time, the methods used or the procedures used were still very high doses of hormones. The drugs completely take over my cycle. It's radical in the sense that it pushes my body so hard to produce as many eggs as I possibly can. And out of this basket of eggs, we have three embryos. And they look good under the microscope. And so all three of them are returned to my womb. And then we have to wait for day 14. This is the earliest after treatment like this. This is the earliest point where you can have a pregnancy test. The earliest point where you know whether this has worked or not. Day 14 comes around, we have a test and it's positive. Then we wait for another two weeks for the first scan. And we can see and we're told that one of the embryos has indeed implanted. And we hear the heartbeat. Another two weeks later, we come back for the next scan, but the heartbeat is gone. A few days after I'm back in hospital, I have to have everything removed. And I just remember emerging from the anaesthetic after this procedure and a nurse coming in with a little bottle and she tells me, here, this is your product of conception. We do this again and again. Then our time in India is up and we come back to New Zealand thinking we can't keep doing this for much longer. They, we've got to get ourselves off this. Somehow this is all too much, but let's just do one more time. Just one more time. The last time we're going to try this. So we're back in a waiting room soon after this. Again, the walls are full of pictures of happy children and babies. Again, it feels a little bit more like a business transaction, really. But we're thinking, okay, this is going to be the last time. It'll be fine. We can do this one more time. And so we start 
another cycle. And halfway into it, the consultant tells us that, oh, he's got to go off to a conference and he might have to take the eggs out two days earlier than planned. This is our last chance. This is the last time we're doing this, I'm thinking, but I can't get the words out. And so the eggs are removed and early the morning after, the embryologist rings us to say that, yes, they did get five eggs, but only one of them is mature enough to do anything with, which they will. And if we did have an embryo from it, they would return it as quickly as possible to my womb because it's the best place for it. We do have an embryo and it does come back quickly. And then we have to wait again for day 14. By now we know people around us who go through the same thing and some of them would get friends and family around on day 14 just to have the support that they might need, whatever the outcome. For us, we decide to book a nice place out of town and just to get away from it all. So we are driving, Andy's driving, I'm sort of curled up in the passenger seat, the phone's between us and we know that sometime on this day the phone will ring and they'll tell us what the outcome is. When it rings, none of us can pick it up, we just let it go to message. I'm curling up even more and he just keeps driving, keeps driving. And we do this, we just keep going, keep going, neither of us can pick up the phone, we just can't do it. And we do this for quite a long time until eventually, I still can't do it, but Andy can, so we'll stop and he picks up the phone, listens to the message. I'm now tight as a spring in this passenger seat. I don't really want to know, but at the same time, I'm eavesdropping on the phone from the other side, just kind of trying to figure out what on earth it's saying. I'm watching his face for any hint of any information. And it's positive. Another positive pregnancy test. We know we are at this point again. For the fertility clinic, we've now become a success statistic. And it's not long after this point that they actually discharge us, release us. And you get a folder of papers of all the stuff that, all the tests and everything that happened through this process, everything that they've gathered up, all the information. And in this folder is a picture of this embryo when it's only six cells old. It's thanks to the Indian doctor that has, who's seen us through these previous cycles and thanks to friends back home that we now have a plan in place what to do with medical support to actually see this pregnancy through to term. And this last goodie <laughs> is now nine years old, at home with his dad and hopefully sound asleep now. <laughs> that was Veronica Maduna. Veronica was born in the Czech Republic, but she has lived in New Zealand for 25 years. She is an award-winning journalist and author with two decades of experience in radio, print, and digital storytelling. She has previously produced and hosted a weekly science program for RNZ, 
written seven books, and contributed to local and international media, including the NZ Listener, NZ Geographic, and New Scientist. She is currently the New Zealand editor of The Conversation, a global not-for-profit media organization. The Story Collider is grateful for the support of the Tiffany & Co. Foundation and of Science Sandbox, a Simons Foundation initiative dedicated to engaging everyone with the process of science. The Story Collider is directed by Liz Neely and me, Aaron Barker, with help from our amazing team. Stories featured in today's podcast were from shows produced by Paula Croxon, Tracy Rowland, Daisha Herbulock, and Caridwin Roberts. The podcast is produced by Zoe Saunders. The theme music is by Ghost. Special thanks to Caveat and Meow for hosting these shows, and to the moms who go through all of this just to create us. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.